This is a Federal News Network podcast. When training air combatants, the armed services find simulators can only take you so far. Sometimes you need practice up in the sky. Over the past few years, the Pentagon has spent $8 billion on contractors to supply planes and pilots to play the enemy. Now those contracts are under review. We get more now from the Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Carrie Russell. Carrie, this is an odd one. I don't think people realize that they had to pay people to be Soviet MiGs or something. Tell us about this program. Yes, well, that's exactly right. And it's a growing capability as the military has faced some challenges in terms of fielding military aircraft and military pilots. They've turned to contractors, which has created a more robust capability now that a number of surplus aircraft have become more available worldwide, given many militaries starting to modernize. And so they're using those to integrate into training programs, and they use these contractor fighters and pilots to basically play the role of adversaries, and it's both used to train uh, new pilots as well as to support exercises for more experienced pilots and for uh, mission training. Well, just out of curiosity, do the contractors fly U.S. surplus planes, or do they fly old MiGs or something? It's a mix. I mean, usually they get surplus aircraft. It can range uh, from any type and any manufacturer based on the, uh, where the source of where they get them. Interesting. I guess if you need to only have speed and not maneuverability, you could use an old Learjet for that matter. Well, and you know, that, that's a good point because it depends on the nature of the training and what kind of capabilities you need. You know, certainly one aspect of training is to uh, train ground forces to call in airstrikes for close air support. Uh, you don't need as much uh, maneuverability and some of the advanced concepts that your capabilities that you might have or need for uh, air-to-air fighting against a near-peer adversary, for example. So the needs can vary quite a bit. But does this use of contractors, has this occurred in instead of having other military airmen play the role of enemy using U.S. planes? That is to say, they don't have enough planes and pilots to pose as the adversaries on their own. Right, yeah. It offsets some of the challenges that U.S. military faces in terms of getting uh, airplanes to fly these missions. You know, there's been um, maintenance backlogs due to shortages of maintainers. There's also been pilot shortages. So all these things have created challenges in terms of the availability of aircraft to perform these. This can, using contractors certainly can free up the readiness of other aircraft that might be used for other missions. So it's a way to fill in that gap. Plus, in addition, uh, using contractors can save on the wear and tear of these aircraft, too, which is no small thing. Sure. And by the way, this is not just an Air Force exercise, is it? That's correct. The Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps all use these services, as well as Special Operations Command to train its uh, ground forces to call in airstrikes. And again, out of curiosity, the nature of the contractor base that does this, is this contractors we're familiar with, or is it a very specialized set of companies that may not be generally known or may not do other things for the military? Yeah, they're pretty focused on that. I mean, they're large companies that run a range of air services, but they're known for their uh, ability to provide combat air forces or adversary air. For a while, trained not just U.S. military, but other countries as well, too. So there's been an industry around for a while on that, but it is, like I said, growing as the availability of these more advanced aircraft have become greater. It sounds like kind of fun work. And what caused the GAO to look into this then? Well, it was a growing number. You know, we were asked through the uh, National Defense Authorization Act to take a look at this um, based on Congress's interest with the growing numbers of them. The concerns are that whether the services are using them appropriately where they should and evaluating the values and the merits and the costs and sort of how does that fit into the integrated training strategies that the services have. And given the large increase in the number and the amounts and the dollars going into this program, it was uh, asked that we take a look at it. 
We're speaking with Carrie Russell, Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Is one of the concerns to make sure that the opposing pilot role-playing is done by U.S. citizens, such that you don't get, you know, Igor from the Soviet Air Force learning how good we are at this or that type of maneuver? Well, certainly that's important. You know, obviously we make sure that those people that need to know that information, uh, DOD makes sure that they have clearances, uh, and it would depend on the types of training. But yes, that's generally uh, <laughs> what you want to want to avoid. <laughs> You're right. But generally, they're looking at how well this whole thing is managed, and if they're getting their money's worth. Right. I mean, the, the question is: Is this become more of an integral part of training? It's making sure that the services understand and know when it appropriate and best to use them and when, when maybe it's better to use military aircraft and making sure you strike the right balance. Um, the, the good news is that the services are, in fact, studying that now and looking at trying to, to build that into their long-term plans by considering such things as affordability, the capabilities, what capabilities you really need for what kinds of training events. Uh, as we mentioned before, you may not need the advanced capabilities for certain events like to simulate an airstrike uh, uh, communications, for example, but you might need much more uh, advanced capabilities when you're talking about maneuvering this guy in a dogfight against a near-peer arrival. You know, the question is we want to make sure that all those things are being considered and the appropriate mix uh, is being developed. And the good news here is that the services are working towards making sure that they build that into their planning. And how efficient are they at using the contractors? That is to say, if the Marine Corps and the Navy are using one and the Air Force is using one, can they somehow consolidate the contract management and maybe the contracting to reduce some of the overhead costs? Yes, and in fact, they have been looking at that. There's been more partnering uh, over the years between the services to look at uh, sharing knowledge about how the contracts work and to even use each other's contracts. So that's absolutely the case. And we've also seen you know, efficiencies in the contracting process more generally where the services have gone from what they used to use, to, say it was a, you know, one contract, uh, one-year contract, one vendor. Now they're going to multi-year contracts with multiple vendors. And that has the benefit of increasing competition. It certainly increases the availability building the capabilities that they can use. Uh, and it also provides a, a more steady and committed demand signal to industry so they can plan that as well. And as a practical matter, I'm guessing that the companies that they use themselves employ former military flyers who are used to what they're going to be doing in the first place. So yeah, I think they have very experienced pilots to include absolutely military pilots, military trained pilots. So where is this all heading? I mean, this is something relatively new, I think, correct, in the history of air training for U.S. crews. Is this going to continue, or do you get the sense that the Pentagon wants to taper it down and get back to their own training at some point? Well, I think that's a big part of what they're looking at now. I mean, the expectation is that they'll continue for some time to fill the gap, certainly, that we mentioned, and, and develop a long-term strategy for how to incorporate contractor-supported aircraft. And, you know, it's a, it's a bigger question, too, that they're looking at with respect to training because they're not only evaluating contractors themselves, but they're looking at what the needs are, certain platforms, certain types of aircraft, which might be more appropriate for certain training. Um, and they're balancing all these things. They're considering manned versus unmanned aircraft. And all this is getting evaluated at a, at a large level. So, you know, in the meantime, they certainly do plan to continue to use contracting air support to fill the gaps and, and, and provide that service. Um, and then they're working through their long-term strategies now. Has there been any thought to, say, the Navy playing the foil to the Air Force and vice versa in these types of operations? <laughs> You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure whether they've gotten to that level of discussion, but as I mentioned, there's certainly partnerships within the services to try to maximize the use of, of air support services. And so uh, so there's a lot of conversations along, uh, certainly uh, going on between the services on how best to utilize each other. 
And at least in the Air Force, retention of airmen has been a problem. And they've had several incentives programs to get flyers to stay in longer. I'm wondering if they could get people to stay longer as part of their career. They could become role play enemy flyers so that the Air Force would have its own staff to use in these exercises. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's, as we mentioned, part of the problem or the concern, the challenges that limit the ability to use military aircraft is certainly pilot issues. We got, as I mentioned earlier, there's also a shortage of maintainers, the ones that do maintenance on the aircraft. But it's also a matter of force structure and making sure you have the fighters available as well. So it's kind of a, a bigger situation to look at. But the Air Force years ago, they had aggressor squadrons back in the 80s and 90s. But as force structure came down, uh, they eliminated most of those squadrons. And so, you know, there's a force structure that goes around building up that capability, too, that would have to be considered beyond just the pilots themselves. One way or another, though, it's an expensive proposition to have that foil aircraft. It is. Uh, it's an important part, but it is an expensive part. You know, flying an aircraft is, uh, is expensive just inherently. And, and training and maintaining pilots is also expensive. So certainly it's a lot of money that goes into those programs. Carrie Russell is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the GAO. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.